Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Engagement Express, the podcast series for HR, engagement and internal communication professionals, giving you tips and tricks on how to increase and foster engagement in your organization. My name's Kate Asiche and I'm a global collaboration and internal comms consultant who's worked for many well-known global brands to support their engagement across multiple regions and cultures. Well, welcome to episode 32, and I'm really excited today to be welcomed by a lady called Rebecca Sankster Kelly. Now, I've been following Rebecca for some time on LinkedIn. She's very, very intelligent, super knowledgeable, and provides such value in the advice and guidance she gives in her videos. Rebecca's a comms and stakeholder management coach and internal comms specialist at Studium Consulting. She empowers clients to communicate effectively and influence their audiences. And today I'm talking to Rebecca about creating psychological safety in organizations. So thank you so much, Rebecca Sankster Kelly, for joining me today on the Engagement Express podcast. I'm so excited to have you here and to be able to have a great discussion with you today. Thank you for having me, Kate. I always enjoy having good, constructive conversations. Everyone learns something. Indeed, they do. Yeah. So it's fantastic to have you here. And in your capacity as an internal comms and management consultant, I wanted to have a conversation with you about psychological safety, the psychological contracts that so many people talk about in relation to employees and organizations and how that creates a culture or not of psychological safety. So what did you really want to focus on, you know, during this conversation? What's your take on this? So the take is that words are powerful and how we construct sentences can make or break a culture or enforce a culture that the org doesn't think exists because companies can create their own mission statements, their own value lists and say, oh, this is what we believe. But It's the behaviors that demonstrate what's really going on and how managers use words, how we in the internal comms use language can create an environment where people feel that failure is unacceptable because creating psychological safety is allowing people to fail and learn from it or people to ask difficult questions that may not be what the leaders want to talk about because they already have their own set criteria in mind of what they need to achieve, what needs to happen, what the deadlines are. And without the language, or at least without the awareness of how their language impacts people's behavior, you can't create an environment of psychological safety. And as communicators, it's not just about how we put out newsletters or videos. It comes down to how that communication impacts the side conversations, because everything should be holistic. We can't limit ourselves to the content we put out. We have to think of the whole org as an ecosystem of communication. And what we put out centrally to the different audiences, that should or can help impact the conversations that managers are having that allows their teams to raise concerns and add ideas and help an org innovate. Because right now, Innovation is so key, or at least is seen as a key focus for companies to accelerate, for companies Mm -hmm. to 
create the market share they want. But without the psychological safety, you can't make change. You can't get people to think differently. So you have to be able to fail and try things out to be able to change and create value. That's what I think is really missing is the awareness of how language impacts people's behavior. Yeah, I find that so fascinating because I've never really looked at it like that before. And, you know, when you think of, I guess, you know, creating a culture where employees or people are enabled to feel free and comfortable failing, you often think of that as event-based or campaign-based internal marketing, as opposed to being omnipresent pervasive, like you say. So those kind of everyday conversations that people managers are having with their teams, that, you know, conversations that people have in corridors, serendipitous, mm-hmm. or to, you know, interactions. You know, I wonder, I'm always really stumped as to how to facilitate that, because presumably, as you say, that's holistic, it's natural, it's fluid, it's not forced. But mm-hmm. as an internal communicator, there's only so much you can do, isn't there? Yeah. And it has to come from how the leader, well, ultimately it's how the leadership is leading the organization and how the leadership wants to do the communications. One book that I found quite helpful in changing the way I've looked at language is a book got by David Marquette and it's called Leadership is Language. And he's from the military in the States and he's a executive coach now. But what he focuses on is on what was red language and what is blue language? And red language he puts down is when on the factory floor back in the Industrial Revolution, excellence from the worker bees, the workers in the factory was about repetition and speed. However, that language is still used when we want people in an office to be creative, to collaborate. However, that language that the managers use, the red language that they use with the workers, is there to stifle dissent, Mm. to stop people from raising questions, from saying there's an issue. Whereas blue languages, which does allow for collaboration, thought, innovation, is more open-ended and allows for those difficult conversations. Or in more, if you really think about it, for there to be psychological safety, the leadership has to be open to hear things they don't want to hear. That's right. You have to be open to the unexpected. So your org won't have psychological safety if you're not prepared to hear things that are uncomfortable. So you can't progress your company and be innovative without taking a risk. And taking a risk is sometimes that simple thing. Well, it's simple to talk about, but it's not simple. It's leaving yourself open and vulnerable. And one of the points in this book that David raises is that the leader should be prepared to speak last because when they've done psychological studies on how people respond to solving problems, if there's a, say, a team building situation and they ask someone, people to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar, if the leader goes first, other people's guesses will be very close to right. that leader's guess. However, if they do a blind thing where people write it down a piece of paper and they put it in the middle then yes, you're going to have more variety. You're going to have outliers. It's the outlying answers that you're really interested in because those are the ones that can really push for change. That's but it has to be that, yeah, so the leadership take, if when they're aware of the power they hold, because they think, well, no, people are going to, people are going to say what they think because they as leaders would say what they think. Mm. But you have to understand that your power, your authority as a leader 
that influence that you have on people's responses because people want to keep their job. People want to please people. No one wants to be that odd people out. No. And when we're aware as leaders of the power we have over people's behavior and then are able to be vulnerable and let people speak. Well, it's also, this isn't just going to happen overnight. That's the other part. You have to decide as an org that this is something you're going to work towards because you have to develop that psychological safety. It's not a nip it in the butt. Oh, everyone's going to feel safe. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> no exactly. one feels safe right away. No. And also it comes down to people trusting your central comm. So if you're able to create that psychological safety, people aren't going to question what comes out because they already feel heard and they already trust. So it's yeah. a cycle and it's an investment of time and effort and vulnerability. Mm. But it has yeah. to be that decision to go in that direction and work towards it. Yeah, there has to be a decision that definitely a firm decision and a culture amongst the leadership teams to be open and receptive to receiving communication. So in my leadership roles as head of internal communications for mm. regions or global, I've held quite a few events that are focused on leadership visibility in organizations where the leaders were not particularly visible and had mm. no regular interactions or opportunities or forums for discussing with employees and particularly junior employees. So I've been in environments where that's had to be created from scratch. And quite often what happens is you'll get a lot of reticence from the leader as to what the questions can be. So, mm -hmm. you know, often they'll try and frame it or they'll, you know, categorize it in some way. And I'm never sort of fond of that. I always think, well, can't we just say you can ask any question? And there are very few leaders who are receptive to that approach, which I always find quite fascinating. And you're so right you know, about this setting the temperature by mm. seeing other questions. Because when I've been in those forums, typically they've been online. When people have brought their questions into the room, the virtual room, uh, they've seen other people's questions or heard other people's questions. They've come to me and said, oh, my question's, my question's awful. Yeah. Everyone else is fine. And I think, no, 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 your question's fine. And then you suddenly see a panic that wasn't there before. And it's so fascinating, isn't it? And it can definitely go two ways because I've seen somewhere there was this one company that I got to observe a town hall and they decided to go with the free version of Slido and they did it this ended up being called Slido gate because a few people decided on anonymous to ask very pointed questions that egged on other people too and there wasn't that psychological safety or that respect in the company to allow for anonymous right so this ended up being where people got quite, I'm going to say cheeky. I figured out who was doing it and they were younger and they were just playing it as a game, but it was having horrendous impacts in the organization with the right. change that was happening. So with that psychological safety you are creating, it's also that respect you're nurturing. So you have to see it as, and also comes from that in terms of transactional analysis, when you have that parent child adult responses. And I don't know if the listeners have heard of this before, but if you look at transactional analysis, you look at parent, child, adult, we all respond to other people, either in a parent to parent, a parent to child, a child to child response. But yeah. you really want to aim for the adult to adult because that's the mature, unemotional and pragmatic engagement. Otherwise, when you have parent to child or the leaders who are in the position of the parent, 
and you have the employees in the position of the child. And it's that condescension to trying to please, which is not mm-hmm. productive because how can you share difficult news with your parent? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. looking for their approval. Yeah. Well, alternatively, I had one client who was with one of his peers was acting like a five-year-old in a sandbox, child to child. <laughs> that was not psychological safety either because they were both competing and acting like brats. Mm. That wasn't productive. So as much as leaders feel uncomfortable with difficult conversations, it's more than just the difficult conversations or the difficult questions. It's more the environment. And if they want to have valuable conversations, they have to look at what the sacrifice is. And the sacrifice is taking a chance, taking risks and building and investing towards a psychologically safe environment. So your people want to contribute, want to grow. And so your org can be innovative. So I love this idea of parent to parent, parent to child transactions. And that Mm. must be so subconscious because I don't ever think about how I'm interacting with my peers or with my seniors or, you know, in regard to those kind of roles that we might adopt Mm. naturally. Yeah, it's really fascinating because People follow patterns. We establish communications patterns when we're young and they follow us. And when we're in certain dynamics, it brings certain engagement patterns out of us. So when we're around someone we want to please, someone we put on a pedestal, someone who we treat like a parent, you're going to act like a cat. And it's figuring out and understanding and questioning why you're responding like that. Are you responding in a equal manner or are you kowtowing to someone? And then you ask yourself, why are you doing that? And it takes that spot of self-reflection to realize it's happening. But it's also interesting when you notice it happening with other people. It's mm. like when you do public speaking and you become aware of verbal pauses, then you hear verbal pauses everywhere. You suddenly see yeah. people's reactions to people everywhere. And you're thinking, yeah, it's so subconscious. And it's that, in a way, it's a bias, but it's a bias towards yourself of how you're positioning yourself with right. that person. And it happens like when yeah, I have memories when junior and wanting to go for promotion and how you position yourself when you're feeling that that person has to approve of you. And it's that transition of realizing I'm an adult, but it's also, it doesn't help when we're in organizations or you're watching your client's organization and you see that same behavior that they're in a microcosm where they feel that they have to get approval. And they feel that in that construct of that engagement, that is the culture of the environment, that they can't speak up, they can't raise an issue. And then you work with them, you're like, yep, I've seen that happen before, but no one will listen to me. So yep, that's a risk that's going to happen, but they need to meet their deadline. Mm. And employees have a wealth of knowledge experience. That's why you keep people in your org. They bring that knowledge, they bring those pieces of what happens when there's failure. But if people aren't allowed to talk about the failure, if you're not allowed to express that this is an improvement from, then you're not going to be able to access those learnings. Right. And also it's that one org I was consulting in, people, they would rather fund and throw money into projects than admit that they were a sunk cost and they just keep investing in it. But if the person who was leading it admitted what was happening, they were going to be a lame duck in the reorg. So people end up doing self-preservation, which isn't good for the company. And it doesn't help for advancement of products or services or 
applications. If people don't feel safe to raise an issue, if they don't feel it's going to impact their career and being able to pay their mortgage and put their kids through school, like all these other factors that are stressful, if they have to think that this is going to be negative towards them and no one else would do it, why should they raise the issue? Why should they feel safe to stand up and do what's right? Right. I really highly recommend the Leadership is Language book because the author starts out with telling a from the transcripts of this ship that ended up sinking and okay. all the different stop points in the vessel's journey of where they could have turned around. But everyone right. on the ship died. Everyone on the ship died. And you're looking and you can see so much symbolism towards corporate companies. And yes, no, very few people are going to die in a corporate company outside of heart Good. attacks and stress, which are another issue. Yeah. But it is this thing of, yes, no one's really dying. But at the same time, do we need to put our employees through this stress? Exactly. Because, yes, psychological safety, it seems like a fuzzy, light thing that, oh, well, these are just people who are woke, who want to everyone to be free and <laughs> run in fields and such. Like, no, it's not about that. It's about people feeling being able to contribute in the workplace. It's about yeah. feeling safe to people want to do a good job. It's when exactly. they don't feel they can do a good job that the toxic behaviors come of throwing people under the bus. And it contributes to all this self-preservation behavior. Yeah. And, that's, and there's this, yeah, sorry. And that, yeah, you're no, no, just no, no, so no. right about the anti-wokeness. You know, there's this real backlash against any kind of attempt to be transparent mm. and truthful and authentic about the you know current circumstances and what's actually happening. You know, people just want to bury things. And like you say, no one dies or very rarely in a corporate environment, but actually the organization dies a slow death because eventually yeah. it will no longer be relevant and will lose its standing in the industry in which it sits. And we've seen that, haven't we, play out over the pandemic. So many organizations have just collapsed because they didn't remain yeah. re relevant. And you've got all these people coming out of the woodwork saying, well, you know, I tried to say, <laughs> and, you know, I, and like you say, you know, airlines, you know, I used to work for EasyJet and, you know, their culture mm. is deliberately open and receptive to talking about mistakes and failures because that's how they learn. And it's fascinating to see because it's formalized in those environments. So you're not allowed to you know, you're actively encouraged to whistleblow. Actually, interestingly, there was a director I worked with who had a doctorate in psychology and his study was looking at the changes in aviation. And I believe it was specifically in Korea where there were a few plane crashes. And when they investigated right. why, it was because of the hierarchy on the plane that no one dare tell wow. the captain that they were wrong. Wow. And this actually ended up being impacting processes and planes all over the world where it's actually the it's not the oh captain i think i've heard flying. of this yes yeah. i've heard of this I've so heard the of captain's this. not the flying it's the first mate or whoever's a second in command and then right. the captain is there and they can then have better conversations about what's happening because when you have the hierarchy in place and it goes back to what the author of the Leadership is Language book is, is saying is that as the leader, you should be the last to speak or you should allow there's other conversations happening so people aren't directed. You as a leader should be cultivating questions, cultivating mm -hmm. progress, empowering your staff to make decisions. And this can come also, though, from people being promoted without being given managerial training. 
Right. Because when someone's excellent at what they do, they keep getting promoted, promoted, and then they're put in a place of managing people. And they're so used to being competitive and being promoted that they're like, oh, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. Individual contributor style. Yeah. And they're so used to competing to get to where they are that they don't get that piece of being there to embrace other facilitate. Yes, exactly. Facilitate and help their teams collaborate. Exactly. And they're not used to not being the person who knows all the answers. Right. So there's so many things that are wrong with the way we do corporate culture that just undermine (laughs) progress. But But when it comes down to it, it is as simple as changing the language, providing pauses for people to raise concerns, raise questions, and not being controlled by the expectations of others. Which is the hardest thing of all because people are group oriented. We don't want to show that we're a weak link. But by being controlled by our own idea of what failure looks like, that's actually creating more failure on a macro level. Yeah. But it's so permissive that we're not actually seeing that it's undermining progress. Yeah. And this is the thing. It goes under the radar. And, you know, what you say about, you know, wanting to be part of the group is so important because it's tribal. You know, we're all tribal. Mm. And that comes down to our ancestors and, you know, not wanting to be kicked out of the tribe because we'd have Mm -hmm. no food or no shelter and no water and we'd die. So it's understandable that, you know, you don't want to be the odd one out or the one to rock the boat, so to speak. But yeah, it's totally pivotal. And I love what you say about this whole idea of hiring people because of what they can bring, the value that they offer organizations. So there's a very famous quote, and I don't know if it's actually from Steve Jobs, but it's certainly attributed Mm. to him to saying, you know, you hire the best people and then get out of their way. And often it's the opposite, isn't it? They hire great people and then get in their way and trying to manipulate them and control them so that in the end, they become frustrated and obsolete and decide to exit Mm. the organization. Another way to look at it, which in terms of making the argument of why companies should invest in creating psychological safety is when in terms of political theory, John Locke does the whole social contract. And it's the idea that man in nature is out there. He's has to defend himself and he trades his freedom for access. So he trades his, he trades being alone in the woods and protecting himself to have protection, but he's then stuck under city guidelines. He gets a house in a policed area, so he can't do exactly what he wants, but he's traded that freedom to have safety, to have food access. And if you think of that, employees are trading the stress of being a sole trader for working and being compensated with a wage. But what else are they giving up that the company should be providing? And that's Mm -hmm. the ability to have that freedom of creativity, that piece of ownership to feel that they're being appreciated. And majority of people are motivated by appreciation. I was speaking with one colleague who's an associate for a consultancy, and he was saying last week that, and it was so interesting because he's worked for a few consultancies as an associate. So being brought in for his expertise, and they simply dropped off a bottle of wine at his over Christmas. And that bottle of wine made such a difference to him that Mm. they actually went out of their way to give him a Christmas present. 
He'd never had that before, but wow. it made him feel appreciated. And it's not that much like a bottle of wine and then postage. It's not that yeah. big of an investment considering no. it's for retention for he's going to feel better about the work he does. Even if he is a sole trader that they're bringing in for a project, do they want to retain him as a key talent? And yes, he's not an employee, but if they're doing that for their employees, what else is this company doing for their real employees, for the people who are their full-time staff? And it's having that awareness of how your actions impact others. And it goes back to the leader. The leader has impact over how safe their people feel speaking out. And then it goes down to how much they feel appreciated that they want to stay with the company. Mm. And if we take a step back as companies and look at what little things we can do that actually drive a lot of value, it would make the workplace a nicer, more constructive place where people aren't scared for their jobs, but are contributing to the benefit and the success of the company because people get an endorphin rush from being part of something great. And if leaders want to create an environment where they have innovation and value, they'll also get a place where they have people who are fans of the company and feel that they're part of something bigger. Yeah, that is so true. And as I say, I say it time and time again, and you've just reiterated something that comes up in this podcast every single episode, is that it's the simple things. It's not anything grand. It's not anything expensive or anything ostentatious. It's the small cards, the thank you notes, the bottle of wine. You know, you're literally talking about next to nothing, um, from mm-hmm. a cost if not nothing. But, it, yep. you know, it makes such a huge difference, doesn't it, to the recipient? You know, they feel appreciated. They feel valued. And like you say, if they did that for a consultant, then Lord only knows what they're doing for their permanent employees. So that's a great example. Mm. Actually, one of my testers when I go to a restaurant is that if they put a lot of effort into making the loo enjoyable experience, then I know that they've thought of everything else. So another way to look at it is like, what is the equivalent of the loo, the toilet (laughs) in the org? I hope hope that's not us as consultants, please. We're not uh, doing No, 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 no. I was thinking like in terms of the benefits and the environment. So like I've been to this one restaurant I went to, they had a lounger in there. It was a beautiful, it was a bar it was a bar I was at, like a bar that served some food, but they turned their toilet, their loo, into a powder room. And it made me feel like, yeah, I feel taken care of. I feel that they've put that extra effort in. So if we think of our orgs, what is the equivalent of something that every other org takes for granted that would make the employees feel that they're safe, they can raise issues, they can bring value, and it would contribute to the innovation? every place has it. It's just going to be different for every organization. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, this conversation that we've had has reminded me so much of an organization where I worked and I did some leadership calls for them. And it was like a monthly thing and we'd have the whole Mm. team join. So it's quite a lot of people. You're talking about over 100 people would dial into these conference calls. And the person who was hosting, the leader, would always start the Q&A session by saying, oh, there are no career ending questions here. You can ask anything. Mm. And of course, everyone thought, oh, my God, he's just mentioned the word career ending in relation to (laughs) Q&A. And then you'd get no questions. It was just the most funniest thing in the world, but actually quite crushing. 
this the but yeah, it, question is the guy. But that's a great example that they hadn't established a psychological safety to allow that statement. Because I remember this one CEO and he decided because it had to do with the oil price had dropped and it was going to impact their company. And he wanted to demonstrate transparency by saying, no one's going to lose their job. (laughs) In the next three months, a third of the people left. Wow. They all thought everything was going downhill and they lost a lot of good people. But yeah. their org was not ready for that transparency. That kind of, right, exactly. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. yeah. And he didn't like, no, he was genuine. trying to be authentic, That's genuine. Right. He was trying to be everything that a leader's told they're supposed to be without having set the groundwork or measuring whether the org was ready. So that's another piece. Your org has to be ready for psychological safety, or you have to measure how psychologically safe people feel. Because the people who left had all experienced or heard of how everyone got cut the last time there was a drop in the oil price. Right. And that stuck with people. That was still on the front of people's minds. They saw this chart. They saw the oil price. They're like, well, last time it got cut, I better be proactive. Right. That is key. So whenever... And this is really what bothers me when people think about communicating as a leader, that they have to be authentic. It's like there's so many other things that are important before authenticity comes in. And it really bothers me when the word authenticity is just thrown around. Like I did a running video, morning running video, and I was about I called it F authenticity because it always comes back as a barrier to people who think, A, they cannot communicate like that or the other thing, the, the leader was so much hubspa that they just think they can be authentic and they haven't done the right. groundwork to establish that relationship. And communication is about a relationship with your audience. Without that investment, <laughs> you're going to be like, well, I was authentic. I don't know what's wrong with them. And they're putting all the blame on them without thinking, yeah. well, what did you do to earn their respect? What did you do right. to earn the opportunity to be believed Just because you're a leader doesn't mean people will believe you. And it's great when people want it, when the leaders want to make that step. That is great and it should be applauded, but they do need to realize the responsibility and the groundwork required for people to take that leap and trust them. Yeah, to make that transition. It's a really Mm. great point and actually a good reminder for me because I often bandy about that term myself, you know, authentic leadership, you know, authentic visibility. And we do tend to use it by being flippant and not thinking so much about what's required to be truly authentic. You need to have those relationships. You need to build that trust. So you're so right. I could talk to you easily another hour about this topic, but we have a run out of time. So I wanted to, before we close the interview, ask you what's happening Mm. for Rebecca and what's going on in your world at the moment. I know you've recently transitioned to being an independent freelance consultant. Yes. So yeah, no, it's a quite an exciting time. I took the leap. I left the security of a regular wage and I am now a communications and stakeholder management coach full time. And it is it's an activity I've been doing on the side for years, either with colleagues at my consultancy or with people who just were at between a rock and a hard place and needed to figure out what their manager meant by they need to work on their communication skills. So <laughs> I work with individuals and teams and I help with from a refining messaging and making sure everyone understands and can communicate with their audience to helping people navigate office politics. So it's a gamut, but it's all about engagement from small C to little C. And for me, I look at communication as a holistic piece as probably came across in this interview. Nothing is 
on an island on itself. That newsletter is not an isolated communication. Everything should be built out and impacting the whole org, the team. Every part of communication should be have rigor and process, but it also should empower. So my goal is to empower people to understand how to communicate effectively, but also that they can communicate effectively and not to be put off by thinking, oh, they can't look like that person or they can't sound like Bob over there. Or they get caught up in what good looks like. And yeah, so that's what I do. I'm out there now as independent and helping people find their voice, find their medium and be confident. Sounds brilliant. And yeah, I've seen your videos online and that's how we came across one another on Violin mm. Team. You know, I saw your videos and then I found them very engaging. And that's why, you know, we're having this interview and, you know, the whole goal behind this um, podcast is to offer value. And you've certainly done that today with your perspective and your viewpoint. So thank you so much for being a guest today, Rebecca. Really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks, Kate, for having me. No, I love this kind of stuff because the more we make comms accessible and usable to people, then everyone can engage more effectively. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much.